Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Robert E. Lee. Now let's get started with our story about Robert E. Lee. For much of the 19th and 20th centuries, Robert E. Lee was perceived as an inspirational military leader and a master tactician who single-handedly extended the Civil War. Refusing Abraham Lincoln's offer of the command of the Union Army, Lee's refusal to fight against what he called his own people was historically accepted as an individually principled position in defense of the Confederacy against external aggression. Despite a deficit in troop strength, munitions, and logistical support, Lee was able to inflict crushing defeats and massive casualties on a much larger and better equipped opponent. His ultimate failure and surrender initially did nothing to tarnish his reputation. Instead, he was regarded as a heroic and tragic figure who did his best to uphold a doomed but noble cause. Over time, Lee has become a much more controversial personality. His military responsibility for the terrible human cost of the Civil War, his attitudes toward slavery, both personally and as an institution, and even the perception that his decision to align himself with the South was not morally righteous but actually treasonous are recent perspectives that have seriously muddied the once pristine and honorable reputation of Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was born on January 19, 1807. He was the son of Henry Lee III and Ann Carter, Henry and Ann's fifth child. Ann was Henry's second wife. Lee's father, a widower, had three children by his first wife, Matilda. Both of Lee's parents emanated from two of Virginia's most aristocratic families. Henry Lee III was a Revolutionary War cavalry officer who earned the nickname Light Horse for his equestrian ability during combat. His mother's family lived at Shirley, one of the oldest and most profitable tobacco plantations in the state. At the time of their marriage, Henry Lee was Virginia's governor and would also serve the state as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. However, by the time of Robert E. Lee's birth, his father had suffered significant economic setbacks, forcing the family to abandon the Lee ancestral home of Stratford Hall. His situation would deteriorate to the extent that Henry Lee III would spend a year in debtor's prison in 1809. Lee's father would be seriously injured in a riot in Baltimore when he and other opponents of the War of 1812 were attacked by a mob that favored a U.S. declaration of war. Henry would never fully recover, either physically or financially, dying in 1818. His wife would survive modestly for 11 years, receiving financial support from her father's family. Not much is known about Lee's childhood, and he had little contact with his father. 
His mother's financial condition was the main reason that Lee sought an appointment at the U.S. Military Academy. An expensive private education would have been financially oppressive. His upper-class connections were enough to secure entrance to West Point in 1825. Lee famously graduated second in his class with no demerits, a rare distinction. Of the 107 first-year plebes who entered with Lee's class, only 45 would survive and graduate. In the early 19th century, West Point was administered by the head of the Army Corps of Engineers, and both mathematics and engineering were emphasized at the academy. Upon graduation in 1829, Lee was commissioned as a second lieutenant. His mother would die on July 26, 1829, only weeks after her son left West Point. Lee spent the summer of 1829 in Virginia, visiting with friends of relatives that he had not seen for most of the four years of his education as the academy only allowed for one brief furlough during this time period. Among these friends was Mary Custis, the great-granddaughter of George Washington's wife, Martha Custis Washington. In the formal courtship process of the time period, Lee secured Mary Custis's agreement that he could write to her during his impending military assignment. Lee was initially assigned to assist in the construction of a fort on the Savannah River, 12 miles from the city of Savannah, Georgia itself. But construction was unsuccessful, and it would be 16 years before Fort Pulaski was completed. Long before that, Lee would be fortuitously reassigned to Fort Monroe, near present-day Hampton, Virginia. He visited Mary Custis at her family home, Arlington House, which overlooked the Potomac and Washington, D.C. Lee's initial proposal to Mary Custis was accepted by her and her mother, but her father, George Washington Park Custis, the adopted son of George Washington and the grandson of Martha Washington, was initially opposed. Not only was Robert E. Lee from a family with limited financial resources, light horse Harry Lee's questionable business practices had brought the hint of scandal to the entire Lee clan. This objection was ironic as George Park Custis was kicked out of Princeton, left St. John's College of Annapolis after only one semester, and made a living renting out all of the various plantation properties that he had inherited. By comparison to the industrious and Spartan Robert E. Lee, Custis was an indolent patrician who lived on the wealth of his ancestors. Eventually understanding that his daughter was enthusiastic about marrying Lee, Mary Custis's father agreed to the marriage of his only child, which took place at Arlington House on June 30, 1831. The marriage would certainly be a period of adjustment for both parties. Mary Custis Lee would have to adapt to life in a military installation, and Robert E. Lee would have to coexist with his wife's religious zeal, which was much more pronounced than Lee's more casual spirituality. Mary Custis had an advantage that many of the other inhabitants of Fort Monroe would not have had. When she wanted a respite from the small two-room residence that she shared with her husband, she could go home to her family in what was essentially a mansion, Arlington House. She spent at least a third of her time early in her marriage away from her husband, a situation that would remain prevalent throughout the relationship. An explanation for the situation could be explained, at least in 1832, by the fact that she was pregnant with the couple's first child, a son named George, after Mary's father, who was born on September 16, 1832. The couple settled into a reasonably happy existence that probably did not challenge Second Lieutenant Lee very much. He eventually agreed to a transfer to the staff of Charles Grecio, 
chief engineer of the Army Corps of Engineers, a position that precipitated residence at Arlington House. For Lee, this was definitely a promotion. He was a direct report to the head of a department within the Army during a period of great expansion for both the country and the military. He helped organize construction projects across the rapidly expanding United States, both from his post in Washington, D.C., and personally in places like Ohio, Missouri, Michigan, and Iowa. Again, these external assignments meant an absence from home, although this did not stop a succession of children, seven in all that began with George in 1832, and continued approximately every two years until 1846. In all, Lee and his wife would raise three sons and four daughters. However, Mary Lee would begin to have health issues as early as 1835, predominantly from difficulties stemming from arthritis. This condition did not prevent Robert E. Lee from accepting an assignment involving the improvement of navigation on the Mississippi River near St. Louis. As a result of this project, Lee was promoted to captain and in 1841 was named post engineer at Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn, New York. His family would accompany him on this posting, which lasted for five years. The Fort Hamilton assignment would be quite productive, with Lee's involvement in the construction of several New York City area fortifications, including Fort Richmond, Tompkins, Willits Point, and Sandy Hook. After more than two decades in the Army, Lee had certainly achieved a level of competence and was a respected member of the Corps of Engineers. However, he and many of the members of the Army of his generation had never experienced combat and the frequently resulting recognition. This would change with the onset of the Mexican War, although for Lee initially, even this conflict involved a laborious process. The war would be the inevitable result of regional hostilities in Texas, U.S. expansionism, and turmoil within the Mexican government. When Zachary Taylor's initial invasion of northern Mexico stalled, President James Polk then turned to General Winfield Scott to pursue another route to Mexican invasion and capture of the capital of Mexico, Mexico City. In early April of 1847, Scott landed at the Mexican port city of Veracruz, the first large amphibious military landing in U.S. history. Many of the individuals who would achieve prominence ultimately in the Civil War would be part of this campaign, including Lee, Stonewall Jackson, U.S. Grant, and James Longstreet. On April 18th, Mexican forces were routed at the Battle of Cerro Gordo with over 1,000 casualties and 3,000 captured. Throughout the summer of 1847, American troops continued a relentless march towards Mexico City, defeating Mexican forces several times along the way. Victories at Contreras and Cherubusco brought Scott's army to within a few miles of the Mexican capital. Here, Winfield Scott paused, hoping to negotiate a peace that would make another costly battle unnecessary. Initially bogged down in northern Mexico, Lee was eventually reassigned to Scott's staff prior to the Veracruz invasion, his engineering skill certainly in demand. Lee was personally singled out by Scott for his conduct and leadership in guiding troops during the Battle of Cerro Gordo. At Contreras and Cherubusco, he was repeatedly entrusted by Scott with orders that were greatly responsible for the successful outcomes of these conflicts, and Scott described him as the gallant, indefatigable Captain Lee. As a result, Lee would receive a promotion to lieutenant colonel. Initially, Scott honored the Mexican request for a ceasefire, and there were general talks of an armistice between U.S. forces and Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the de facto head of the Mexican military and government. 
These discussions dragged on and were actually an attempt by Santa Ana to strengthen the defenses of the capital before the Americans undertook their inevitable assault. This attack would have to traverse a route to the center of the city that was defended by the Chapultepec Castle, a fortress garrisoned by both Mexican soldiers and cadets from the on-site Mexican National Military Academy. As an engineer, Lee was responsible for placing the artillery used during the assault of the castle, which began on September 12, 1847. He initially guided the troops storming the citadel and then fell back to rejoin Scott, who ordered him to be by his side during the actual battle. On the morning of September 13th, an assault group of approximately 500 American soldiers eventually ascended the steep walls of Chapultepec with scaling ladders, and after engaging in bloody hand-to-hand combat, managed to capture the fortress in approximately one hour. As a contingent of U.S. Marines visibly influenced the battle, the climactic moment of the Mexican War, the phrase, from the halls of Montezuma, would permanently memorialize this effort as the first words of the Marine Corps hymn. Six of the Mexican cadets who defended the fortress have also been immortalized in American history as Los Niños Héroes, six teenage boys who refused their commander's order to retreat from the castle and instead fought to the death. One of these teenagers, Juan Escutia, allegedly leapt from the roof of the citadel, wrapped in the Mexican flag, to prevent it from falling into the hands of the Americans. Although Lee's contribution at Chapultepec was not as dramatic, he would eventually receive another promotion to colonel and would accompany Scott's victorious column as it entered Mexico City. The occupation of Mexico's capital ended all but sporadic opposition to American occupation. By virtue of the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Mexico would be forced to cede what currently constitutes most of the American Southwest and renounce any claim to the territory of Texas which the U.S. had already annexed. Mexico received $15 million in cash and was forgiven $3 million in debts on claims supposedly owed to American citizens. The war politically divided the American people, many believing that using superior military force to seize territories from much weaker foes was un-American and that this expansion would also lead to the expansion of slavery, an already controversial issue. Lee did not return to Arlington House until June of 1848, having been absent for two years. He would be rewarded with light duty concerning the Army Corps of Engineers in Washington until early 1849, and his assignment to building Fort Carroll in Baltimore. He would also travel across the eastern seaboard on temporary assignments, inspecting various military installations, duties that would also take him away from his family's Baltimore home for long periods. The passage of time for Lee was evidenced by the successful admission of Lee's eldest son to West Point in 1850. Only two years later, the respect that Lee had earned in the Mexican War and during his tenure within the Corps of Engineers would be underlined by his appointment as superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy, effective September 1, 1852. Lee did not want the position and, through official channels, attempted to refuse the appointment, but these efforts were unsuccessful. Although Lee enjoyed spending time in the proximity of his son, he considered his three years at West Point a pointless negative experience. While he was gratified to see his son graduate first in his class, George Custis Lee would also be immediately assigned to the Army Corps of Engineers. It was not until 1855, fully 30 years after Robert E. Lee entered military service, that he would receive his first leadership role in a combat unit. 
Lee would officially leave the Corps of Engineers and be placed second in command of a cavalry unit in central Texas that was assigned to protect civilians from attacks from both Apache and Comanche. Lee received this appointment from the then Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, an individual who would eventually have great influence on Lee's future military career. In a letter, Robert E. Lee succinctly described Camp Cooper, the remote outpost consisting of four rows of tents containing Lee's regiment as, quote, far beyond civilization, unquote. Lee would spend two years in the southwestern plains, splitting his time between trying to even find hostile Comanche and sitting on lengthy and tedious court-martials at various far-flung outposts. During his entire deployment at Camp Cooper, Lee would only be involved in one engagement involving hostilities. This assignment would come to an abrupt end on October 21, 1857, when he received a telegram informing him of the death of his father-in-law, understanding immediately that he would have to return to Arlington to supervise the disposition of his father-in-law's considerable estate. Lee was able to receive two months of leave and arrived home by early November. As his wife was an only child, and both of her parents were now deceased, her mother having died suddenly in 1854, Lee's family stood to inherit the entire estate. Understanding that George Park Custis was not the most diligent of managers, Lee also understood that unraveling these assets would be a massive undertaking. Typically, Lee's father-in-law wrote his own will, naming his son-in-law as his executor. The will split up much of the property among Robert E. Lee's children and his wife. He received some modest land in Washington, D.C. As substantial as the land in the estate was, there was also a huge amount of debt associated with George Park Custis's management of the various plantations. Still, Lee could have resigned from the army, assumed control of the management of the estates, and eventually become an extremely wealthy member of the Virginia gentry. Instead, he chose to remain in the military, possibly revolted by the idea of becoming something like both his father and father-in-law. When his son, who was bequeathed Arlington House upon his mother's death, attempted to deed any claim to the estate to his father, Lee refused, ostensibly because he did not wish to interfere with the wishes of his father-in-law. Having saved and invested his own modest income wisely to the point of affluence, perhaps Lee did not wish to be seen as someone who advanced as a result of inherited wealth. In any case, he would be burdened with the mess of the Custis estate for the rest of his life. Lee would also have to confront another immediate issue that had mostly been more of a philosophical quandary rather than an everyday reality. This was the number of slaves that would have been an essential part of running the Custis properties. It was part of the slaveholding process that slave owners would frequently either infer or outright promise their slaves freedom upon their death, occasionally even putting this in writing in a will. George Park Custis did address this issue, granting freedom to all of his slaves contingent upon the resolution of the debt overhanging his estate. In any case, he stipulated that all of his slaves would receive their freedom within five years of his death. Some of Custis's slaves became hostile to Robert E. Lee, asserting that they were freed by the death of Custis and even attempted to flee the state of Virginia. Twice, Lee was forced to track these individuals down, eventually renting these slaves to other overseers who would ensure that they remained enslaved. Possibly because of the high profile of a slave owner like Park Custis and Lee's military position, accounts of alleged brutality in the recovery, recapture, and subsequent treatment of such slaves appeared in northern newspapers, like Horace Greeley's New York Tribune. 
These anonymous articles recounted ill treatment, minimal nutrition, and even whippings delivered upon female slaves by Lee himself. One would have to weigh the widespread brutality meted out by many slave owners with the hysterical abolitionist propaganda that was journalistically routine in the 1850s to determine if this actually happened. Lee himself never responded specifically to charges of personal cruelty, but there is no question that he considered slaves an essential part of the operation of his family's property and utilized these assets to retire the Custis estate debt. Lee also was occasionally accompanied by a solitary slave during his various military postings, a legacy from his mother's side of the family. By the fall of 1859, Lee had successfully paid off the estate's debt and was funneling any plantation profits into a trust stipulated by the will to benefit Lee's daughters. He got his eldest son assigned to the Army Corps of Engineers office in Washington, D.C., allowing Custis to live in and manage Arlington House and care for Lee's wife, whose arthritic condition was quite pronounced. Perhaps Lee anticipated another lengthy absence from home, which occurred on October 17, 1859, when a first lieutenant personally delivered a message from the War Department. This messenger, James Ewell Brown Stewart, a.k.a. Jeb, was a former classmate of Lee's son at West Point and well-known to Robert E. Lee, who was the superintendent during Stewart's matriculation. The 26-year-old cavalry officer brought a personal summons from the Secretary of War, John Floyd. Stewart explained that a mob consisting of as many as 3,000 insurgents had seized the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Lee left with Stewart immediately met personally with President Buchanan, and agreed to lead a detachment of Marines and Maryland militia to the arsenal on the double. Stewart volunteered to serve as Lee's aide, and the force left so quickly that Lee handled the entire matter while dressed in civilian clothes. The savage mob of thousands of wild-eyed, freed slaves and abolitionists rampaging through the federal arsenal was actually a group of 19 men under the leadership of a fanatic named John Brown. Brown's intent was to stir up the local slave population and recruit hundreds of like-minded abolitionists and slaves to first seize the weapons at Harper's Ferry and then begin a full-scale revolt aimed at freeing many of the slaves in the region. Brown's fundamental belief that hundreds if not thousands of individuals would rally to his side was an absurdity. He did manage to gain access to the armory itself, more through surprise than anything else. Local armed residents surrounded the armory, counterattacked, and successfully pushed Brown and his men into a small engine house on the armory grounds. Several of Brown's men were killed on October 17th, but his flag of truce was ignored by the locals, incensed that four residents, including the mayor, had been killed, and the fight continued. The first group of militia got to Harper's Ferry in the late afternoon and almost ended the rebellion before Lee even arrived. They successfully stormed the engine house and freed some hostages, but were unable to force Brown's surrender. The following morning, Lee was present on the scene, and eventually it was decided that the Marines would attack the engine house. Under a white flag, Jeb Stewart personally offered one final opportunity to surrender, but Brown refused. First sledgehammers and then a ladder was used to batter down the doors to the small enclosure. Israel Green, the lieutenant at the head of the company, quickly identified John Brown and attacked him with his saber, seriously wounding him on the back of the head. The rebels were subdued in less than five minutes. In a subsequent report, Lee described Brown as a, quote, fanatic or madman, unquote. John Brown would recover from his wounds and was hanged on December 2, 1859. 
Six other rebels were subsequently hanged. Initially, public opinion in the North would concur that Brown's action was misguided and even delusional, but his execution eventually transformed him into a martyr for the cause of abolition. With his family affairs in reasonably good shape, Lee's leave of absence concluded, and he eventually returned to active duty in Texas. It would be from this distant perspective that Lee observed first the tumultuous election of 1860, in which he cast a ballot for Democrat and states' rights advocate John Breckinridge, and the subsequent formal dissolution of the Union. Texas would initially begin the process of rebellion by voting to reestablish itself as a republic on February 1, 1861. Representatives of six other states from the Deep South would also convene in Montgomery, Alabama, and declare the formation of a Southern Republic, the Confederate States of America. This dire situation caused Lee's former commanding officer, Winfield Scott, to summon him to Washington. Scott was now the head of the entire U.S. Army, and he met behind closed doors with Lee in early May 1860 for three hours. Undoubtedly, Scott, because he held Lee in such high esteem, would have offered Lee command of the Union Army in the field. Lee repeated to Scott what he had said on many occasions when asked about whether he would fight for the Union or the Confederacy, that he was opposed to secession as unconstitutional, but that he could not bear arms against his home state. Whatever Virginia, as yet undecided in terms of secession, decided to do, he would follow. Allegedly, Scott, a fellow Virginian, responded that there was no room for ambiguity in his army, and the meeting concluded. When Confederate artillery forced the surrender of Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, President Lincoln issued a national request for 75,000 troops to put down the rebellion. Confederate President Jefferson Davis countered by asking for 100,000 men to volunteer for the Confederacy. Robert E. Lee was again summoned to Washington, D.C. to discuss assuming the command of the federal government's army in the process of formation. He met separately with both Francis Blair, an influential advisor to President Lincoln, and Winfield Scott, both imploring him to take command. He refused both men. A convention to decide whether Virginia would secede was already underway and heading toward an inevitable outcome. On April 20, 1861, Lee took the additionally agonizing step of resigning from the Army, writing directly to Scott. Since my interview with you in the 18th, I have felt that I ought not longer to retain my commission in the Army. I therefore tender my resignation, which I request you will recommend for acceptance. It would have been presented at once, but for the struggle it has cost me to separate myself from a service to which I have devoted all the best years of my life and all the ability I possessed. During the whole of that time, more than 30 years, I have experienced nothing but kindness from my superiors and the most cordial friendship from my companions. To no one general have I been as much indebted as to you yourself for the uniform kindness and consideration, and it has always been my ardent desire to merit your approbation. I shall carry with me to the grave the most grateful recollections of your kind consideration, and your name and fame will always be dear to me. Save in the defense of my native state, I never desire again to draw my sword. Be pleased to accept my most earnest wishes for the continuance of your happiness and prosperity, and believe me most truly yours, R.E. Lee. On April 22nd, Lee met with the governor of Virginia in Richmond and accepted command of the military and naval forces of the state. Eventually, he would relinquish this position when Jefferson Davis decreed that all state troops were to be part of a national Confederate army assigned by the Confederate government. Lee would remain in Richmond in an advisory capacity, but was not yet officially part of the rebel war effort. 
In the fall of 1861, Lee would travel to northwestern Virginia, where he would again serve in an advisory capacity. After Confederate forces were defeated at the Battle of Cheat Mountain and Lee's performance was considered underwhelming, Jefferson Davis reassigned him to review fortifications in Georgia and the Carolinas. Lee would then assume an advisory capacity in Richmond. This would change abruptly when Joseph Johnston, the commander of the main Confederate army in Virginia, was severely wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines. This battle near Richmond was Johnston's counterattack against Union General George McClellan's Peninsula Campaign to attempt to capture the Confederate capital. The battle, the most contentious and costly of the war up to that point, precipitated over 10,000 casualties. It wound up as a stalemate, but Jefferson Davis then officially appointed Robert E. Lee to replace Johnston, and the newly designated Lee would rename and reorganize the Confederate force as the Army of Northern Virginia. Within weeks, on June 25th, Lee would go on the offensive and begin an attack known as the Seven Days Battles. McClellan was already wary of his extended position and supply lines and began a tactical retreat. Lee pursued and missed a great opportunity to inflict a major victory, his generals allowing the Union Army to escape to high ground at Malvern Hill. Here, McClellan held off a concentrated Confederate attack on July 1st, but ultimately retreated further from Richmond. This would be the closest that the Union Army of the Potomac would come to capturing the Confederate capital until the latter stages of the Civil War. Although Lee, for the moment, had successfully saved Richmond, another Union army under the command of John Pope was massing in northern Virginia. Lee moved aggressively, hoping to strike Pope before he could unite with McClellan, splitting his army into two forces, one commanded by Thomas Stonewall Jackson, the other by James Longstreet. Maneuvering and probing by both generals in late August ultimately culminated in the Second Battle of Bull Run, also known as Manassas, named for the nearby Virginia town. Although Lee had not been involved a year earlier, the Union Army had already been defeated at the same spot in the first meaningful battle of the war. This time, much larger numbers of combatants would participate in what ultimately resulted in a decisive Confederate victory, forcing Pope to retreat to Washington, D.C. Again, Lee's generals missed an opportunity to destroy a Union Army, but now Lee was on the offensive, and continual poor leadership was demoralizing the federal effort. Pope's tenure was so dreadful that he was sacked and ordered to Minnesota to fight hostile Sioux, his army absorbed into McClellan's. On September 3, 1862, Lee launched his first invasion of Northern Territory when his troops crossed the Potomac River and entered the state of Maryland. Initially, Lee split up his army again, allowing Stonewall Jackson to break off and capture the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry. He was hoping that Maryland, a deeply divided state, would provide additional soldiers and support. However, Lee's invasion was greeted by residents hiding indoors or ignoring his troops with passive hostility. Although McClellan would become aware of Lee's intentions when a copy of Lee's written orders accidentally fell into Union hands, the perpetually cautious Union general moved too slowly to exploit this advantage. By the time he decided to engage Lee near the town of Sharpsburg, Maryland, the Army of Northern Virginia had reunited its disparate elements. Even so, McClellan had close to 90,000 troops to Lee's 50,000, a tremendous advantage. Union forces began an attack at dawn, with McClellan sending an entire corps of 8,600 men directly into Confederate lines, the objective the tiny Dunker Church at the Confederate center. 
on the way they would be confronted by Confederate troops in the cornfield, a hand-to-hand struggle that would help make the battle the bloodiest day in U.S. military history, with close to 23,000 men killed, wounded, or captured. This brutal stalemate continued throughout much of the morning, and McClellan continued to probe other weaknesses, attempting to penetrate the Confederate lines at a sunken barrier of defense that became known as the Bloody Lane. Despite successfully breaching Lee's defensive position, McClellan cautiously held his reserves out of the line, and a major opportunity was lost when Southern troops successfully counterattacked. Next, McClellan ordered General Ambrose Burnside to press the southern part of Lee's position with an assault on a stone bridge across Antietam Creek that would henceforth be known as Burnside's Bridge. It would take three frontal assaults to take the bridge, but Union troops would again be fought to a standstill and driven back to the creek. By late afternoon, Lee became concerned that McClellan's numerical superiority might potentially overrun and shatter his force. He began the process of retreat across the Potomac to Virginia. On his part, McClellan grossly overestimated Lee's numerical strength and never followed up strategic advantages with reserve troops that were not utilized. Abraham Lincoln would use this battle, officially a draw, but a strategic victory for the North as Lee's invasion was repulsed, to issue the Emancipation Proclamation declaring slaves in rebel territories, and only in rebel territories, free as of January 1, 1863. This was strategically important as it tied the Union effort to eliminating slavery and it discouraged Britain and France from recognizing the Confederacy. To do so would have been a de facto endorsement of slavery. Antietam was costly for both sides, but especially damaging to Lee's army, which lost about a third of its men, with a diminished capacity to replace these troops. Although President Lincoln was able to exploit Antietam politically, he was unhappy with McClellan's cautious approach to leadership and perceived correctly that the general had national political ambitions. He relieved him of command and replaced him with Ambrose Burnside, a plodding, modestly talented general who hadn't distinguished himself at Antietam. Burnside would take months to implement a strategy for another attempt to capture Richmond. In November, he began a march with a feint towards a western approach to the Confederate capital and then a rapid attempt to cross the Rappahannock River at Fredericksburg, Virginia. Delayed by a logistical inability to bridge the river, Burnside had to wait, and by late November, Lee maneuvered his troops into high ground across the Rappahannock, behind the town of Fredericksburg itself. Burnside had lost the fundamental advantage in his hope to quickly capture Richmond, and he was now faced with ordering an attack on Lee's position or foregoing the offensive completely and setting up winter quarters. Understanding that his commanders in Washington and the president himself would be disappointed with the latter option, Burnside elected to attack. On December 11th, Union artillery pounded the town and pontoon bridges were placed in the Rappahannock. Union troops successfully crossed the river and massed for an attack on Lee's well-fortified lines. This would occur on December 13th. An initially successful assault on the southern portion of Lee's army was eventually driven back by troops under Stonewall Jackson's command. Burnside then attempted repeated assaults against Lee's northern position on Marie's Heights, a strategically difficult objective that also featured many Confederate soldiers positioned behind a four-foot stone wall reinforced with logs. Union troops would have to traverse an open field of 600 yards before even reaching the rebel position. Burnside first sent three divisions across the field, one brigade at a time, with numerous attempts to breach Lee's defenses. 
Would withering artillery and rifle fire force this group to retreat? Burnside tried again with three more divisions that had been held in reserve. More carnage ensued, and only darkness ended the slaughter. While witnessing this battle, Lee is alleged to have said, It is well that war is so terrible, or we should grow too fond of it. Burnside wanted to try again on December 14th, but was talked out of it. The Union disaster at Fredericksburg, with 13,000 men killed or wounded, sent shockwaves through the North. The troops themselves were extremely negative about whether such carnage was worth it. This negativity was amplified in newspapers throughout northern cities, scathingly critical of both the Army and Lincoln. By contrast, Lee's victory sent a surge of confidence through both his Army and the South. For the first time, Southern newspapers praised Lee effusively, and he became a public figure. Still, the leader of the Confederate war effort faced enormous military and personal challenges. Despite victory on the battlefield, the winter of 1862 proved to be extremely harsh. Southern soldiers forced to scavenge clothing and equipment from Union stores that were captured or left behind. Frequent winter storms produced cold and mud that made day-to-day existence miserable. The Confederate government in Richmond provided little, forcing men and animals to survive on greatly reduced rations. Lee also advised his wife to leave Arlington House, which, based on its proximity to Washington, D.C., would undoubtedly be occupied by Union troops. Mary Lee reluctantly agreed and would eventually spend much of the war in Richmond with her daughters, her declining health and arthritis confining her painfully to a wheelchair. Typhoid fever also claimed the life of Lee's 23-year-old daughter, Anne, in October of 1862, which also must have weighed heavily on Lee's entire family. Meanwhile, Abraham Lincoln decided after another aborted winter offensive to fire Ambrose Burnside and replace him with Joseph Hooker. Hooker spent the early months of 1863 rejuvenating and replenishing the Army of the Potomac, which was demoralized by a year of failure. By the spring, Hooker had amassed a fighting force of 120,000 troops, roughly twice that of Lee's force. He concocted an intricate plan to simultaneously attack Lee from both the front and flank of the Confederate current position, the goal no longer to capture Richmond but to destroy Lee's army. To implement this plan, Hooker ordered over 50,000 men to march to the northwest and mass at the small road junction of Chancellorsville, Virginia. Lee countered by sending Stonewall Jackson in the direction of Chancellorsville, and on May 1st, the two forces encountered each other, and the unplanned Battle of Chancellorsville spontaneously began. Although, at that point, Hooker had many more troops, he hesitated and adopted a defensive posture, not wanting to relive the massacre at Fredericksburg, but passing on a golden opportunity. This pause allowed Lee and Jackson to seize the initiative on May 2nd, Jackson sent on a hidden march with 28,000 troops to attack Hooker's right flank, Lee adopting a defensive position directly in front of Hooker with only 13,000 troops. Jackson's covert march would be through the dense underbrush known locally as the Wilderness, eventually situating him to the rear and right of Hooker's position. Although Hooker received reconnaissance that indicated that this flanking march was underway, his corps commander, Oliver O. Howard, did nothing to adjust, despite Hooker's orders to do so. At 5.30 p.m., with Howard's troops preparing to eat supper, Jackson's men began a massive attack that took the Union troops completely by surprise. Within minutes, the right flank of Hooker's line disintegrated, and Hooker's central position at the Chancellorsville Junction was soon engulfed with fleeing federal troops and the sound of the approaching rebel onslaught. 
Only darkness and disorganization stopped the Confederate attack as Jackson's troops halted amid the confusion. Aware that he could potentially completely envelop Hooker and achieve the destruction of the Army of the Potomac that could possibly end the war, Jackson continued to reconnoiter beyond rebel outposts. At approximately 9 p.m., Jackson then returned to Confederate lines where he was mistakenly shot by members of the North Carolina 18th Regiment. Hit three times in the arm and shoulder, Jackson would have his left arm amputated, and the Confederate general would be removed 30 miles behind the lines to a farm on the railroad route to Richmond. Informed of Jackson's wounds, Robert E. Lee initially dismissed updates brusquely, perhaps not wanting to comprehend the gravity of such a loss. On May 3rd through May 4th, Lee successfully pressed his advantage against Hooker, ultimately forcing a Union withdrawal at Chancellorsville and other federal troops at Fredericksburg. Lee had achieved his most stunning victory of the war, a two-to-one disadvantage forcing him to gamble by splitting his forces and tactically outwitting Hooker, betrayed by incompetence and his own timidity despite a huge manpower advantage. Union casualties would number over 17,000 men, almost as many as at Antietam. But Lee's victory came at a terrible cost. Over 13,000 casualties who, unlike the Army of the Potomac, could not easily be replaced. From a leadership perspective, Lee would also be forced to face the reality of the loss of Stonewall Jackson. Initially thought to be able to recover from his gunshot wounds, Jackson contracted pneumonia and died on May 10th. Lee was uncharacteristically emotional in a letter to his son, Custis. It is a terrible loss. I do not know how to replace him. Such an executive officer the sun never shone on. I have but to show him my design, and if it can be done, it will be done. Despite the Confederate victory at Chancellorsville, rebel prospects were actually precarious. A federal army under Ulysses Grant was threatening the Mississippi River town of Vicksburg, and with it the last Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. The loss of Vicksburg would potentially cut the Confederacy in half. Lee returned to Richmond to confer with Jefferson Davis on his next move, although some within the Confederate Army and military wanted to split up the Army of Northern Virginia to relieve both Western Confederate armies and the city of Vicksburg, Lee disagreed. He wanted to invade Union, Pennsylvania, precipitate another showdown, and hope to end the war with a momentous victory that would force Lincoln to recognize the impossibility of a military victory. If Lee shattered the Army of the Potomac, Vicksburg would quickly become irrelevant. Lee also wanted to access the supplies and provisions that the state of Virginia and his government could not provide. A massive southern victory would also further stoke northern opposition to the war, which was unpopular and might even encourage recognition from European governments like Britain and France. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Robert E. Lee. Much of the information for this podcast came from Robert E. Lee, a biography by Emory M. Thomas, and Lee, The Last Years by Charles Braceland Flood. There are also additional photographs and bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. 
Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.